0: welcome to the fullness church weekly podcast at fullness we value the bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about jesus our hope is this teaching will do just that
1: we're going to pick up right where gabriel left off last week if you did not get a chance to hear last week you missed a really amazing sermon i highly highly encourage you to go back and and listen, you need to be able to set aside a whole hour for it. It um, will not be that long today, but it was, it was fantastic. Um, as you're turning to 1 Timothy 3, I want to ask a kind of a fun question. and I do expect a show of hands in this. First question is for the men in the room. Guys, how many of you in the last few weeks have been asked by some female in your life, how often you think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> okay. Ladies, how many of you in the last few weeks or so have asked some guy that you know, could be a boyfriend, husband, father, brother, whoever, how often he thinks about the Roman Empire? How many have no idea what I'm talking about? You're totally confused. <laughs> All right, so this started as a, a trend on TikTok, And it kind of blew up beyond that social media platform to where women would go to a guy that they know in their life, boyfriend, husband, or whoever, and while they're filming themselves, or even while they're not filming themselves, they would ask him how often he thinks about the Roman Empire. And time after time after time, these ladies were shocked by how often we guys seem to think about the Roman Empire. Um, I've been asked this in the last few weeks, and I had to say, well, actually, kind of a lot. Um, of course, usually it's related to the New Testament, because so much of the New Testament takes place in that setting. But guess what, guys? This morning, you're going to get to talk about and think about the Roman Empire. So, <laughs> uh, let's, so let's, I want us to picture the scenario to which Paul is writing, to remind ourselves of the situation going on here in Ephesus. Um, this is a society where idolatry is rampant to the point where people love their idols so much that they get highly offended if their idols are rejected as we saw in Acts 19 the riot that takes place in Ephesus over idols relating to Artemis this is a society where sexual morality is normalized and rampant this is a society this is a church where false teaching false doctrine has arisen from within inside the church so there's threats from without and within And unfortunately, there are people in the church, leaders in the church even, who were elders, who have exposed themselves as actually wolves, um, fulfilling what Paul predicted in Acts 20, spreading false teaching in the church and bringing reproach upon the name of Christ and upon his church. And it doesn't take much imagination to see the similarities between the society that we live in in our modern age with what they were living in then. One of my uh, favorite authors, a, a guy named Leslie Newbigin, a, a missionary and theologian, he said that one of the main um, similarities between that time that we're talking about today and the modern age is that that was a pre-Christian paganized society. And we live in a post-Christian paganized society that actually, he says, is more resistant to the gospel than they were. And so the question that I think we have to ask ourselves as we approach 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, is this. In this environment, what are the kind of people that need to shepherd God's church in this situation? That is the question that we bring to the text because that is the question that Paul is going to be answering in these verses when he talks about the qualifications for Elders, leaders in the church. So let me say up front: is the assumption seems to be clear from this text that they are male. Um, Paul's pretty clearly talking about males in this passage, and as as Gabriel pointed out last week, that's been the pattern throughout biblical history. Um, the general pattern is is they the leaders have been male, but it's not been the universal pattern. That's also been the general pattern throughout church history, although not universally so. Um, but remember, this was a society in which females likely would not even have been educated. So they would not even have been able to to teach. Um, and this is a difficult question that that kind of gets raised from this passage. Is, is Paul setting up a, a, a standard that is universal for all churches of all times and all places that All the elders have to be male. Um, I'm not going to venture into the same dicey territory that Gabriel camped out in last week. Um, I I will say I lean towards probably not. Um, I I don't think that's probably the case, although it is the the general pattern. Um, But I am going to put this slide up that he put up last week because it bears repeating. This is the official position of fullness. This is an exact quote, the way that, that Bart words this. He says, At this time, the current position of fullness is that we believe women can do any ministry in the church. And by the way, they they do. They they teach, they preach, they lead, um, lead small groups, they can serve communion, they can baptize, they can prophesy in public. They can do all of those things. However, we reserve the roles of senior pastor and elder for men. And we would say this is not a first-order doctrine, meaning that there are other faithful communities of of brothers and sisters in the Lord who've arrived at a different place on this, and um, we would still say they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. But this is where we feel that the Lord has us, and we think that there's solid biblical ground there. Um, That's really all I have to say about that, so I'm going to move on from from that. Uh, But you might be thinking, okay, so if this is a passage about what are the qualifications for elders Why do I need to be listening to this sermon? Um, Just kind of joking with with David that maybe we should have like, you remember in old churches, like kind of traditional churches where they have like children's hour where all the children come forward and they sit and the pastor addresses them. Um, Like having all the elders come and sit down at the front and we I (laughs) preach to them. I don't think that would go over very well. Uh, But I do want to say we have amazing elders in this church, And if you don't know them, you need to get to know them. These are men of God. And I want to publicly honor them right now. Bart Brookens, Chris Kuhn, TV Drew, Tom Kemma, Grant Gramstead, and David Robbins. These are men who shepherd us well, and uh, they understand what it means to be an elder. That's why they are elders. Um, but I want us to see kind of underneath what Paul, in the words that he's writing, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, what is his heart really for not just those men, those leaders, but the church in Ephesus and the implications for us here today, as he writes, because you know he's he's talking to a culture that specifically where, where men have influence. But in our day and age, every person sitting in this room, you are a leader, as Bart said many times. You may believe that about yourself, you may not believe that about yourself, but you are an, a leader. You are influencing somebody. And so what things should characterize you as you seek to lead as a follower of Jesus in broken times? So with that said, let's look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. So he's going to give a list of qualifications for elders and then deacons. I'm going to actually spend most of my time in the first list, verses 1 through 7. So here we go. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires... So a few important things about these lists before we go on that we really need to be aware of. First of all, the same Greek word for overseer and elder, is, it's the same word. And those are often interchangeable words, um, episkopos. The, um, the word, it, it really means an overseer, a guardian, a bishop. The verb form of the word means exercising oversight, to oversee, to care for, to look at, to take care of. In the New Testament, they always appear in a plural number, and, and it's not just one elder. So we would hold to a um, what, what is called a plurality of elders here at Fullness. It's not one person that all the power is is concentrated in. Also, it seems, as Gabriel pointed this out last week, it seems this is probably not a, a really strict checklist um, for, for all of these qualifications, because if it was super strict, taken completely literally, Paul would have disqualified himself by nature because he wasn't married. Paul was, was single. <clears throat> so um, not, not necessarily a strict checklist. It's assuming that the overseers of the church will be married, but it's not setting that up as a qualification. Also, some of these same qualities are actually given to non-elders um, and even women in the church. Uh, women are told multiple times to have self-control. In the passage that, that Gabriel preached on last week, they're told twice, be self-controlled. And later on in the passage, widows um, who were the wife of one husband, Paul says, are, are told to be taken care of. That's just the flip side of saying husband of one wife. And so these qualities are not necessarily meant to characterize only elders, but the elders are meant to exemplify them. Think Maybe surprisingly, none of these characteristics are distinctively Christian in and of themselves. In actuality, these are characteristics that would have been part of just Greek moral philosophy, just kind of the highest ideals of Greek moral philosophy at the time. Paul is, of course, assuming that these guys have Christian virtue, are showing the fruit of the Spirit, but this list is really more about their public conduct in a pagan society. How they appear publicly. This list focuses almost exclusively. On the character qualifications. Of leaders. More so than their their duties. What they're actually called to do. With the notable exception of teaching. It says they must be able to teach. But these lists are really more focused on. What is the type of person. Who is to be appointed to, to shepherd and, and lead. It's also I think really important to note this list these lists are not legalism and I I hope and pray it's been really my biggest concern is that this is not taken as something that is oppressive or weighty this is not Paul putting extra weight to crush people this is Paul calling people up to a higher standard Paul has already emphasized the gospel in chapter one that was two weeks ago pastor Bart emphasized that We, we 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 live by the gospel. The gospel forms us. In chapter 2, Paul says that there is one mediator between God and men, the, the man, Jesus Christ. So following a list is not the mediator between us and God. The gospel is the gospel is what forms us into these kind of people. And the Holy Spirit is who empowers us to be these kind of people. And finally, it's important to note that these lists must be seen in contrast. Paul is writing to a specific situation that's happening in Ephesus, and he's saying these lists should stand in sharp contrast to the conduct of the false teachers, of the opponents, who are bringing reproach on the name of Christ and on his church. You know, there's, there is there um, is a lot of distrust of leaders right now in our society. I think that's pretty well known, leaders in politics, leaders in business, leaders in the church are genuinely, generally viewed with distrust and suspicion because many people have been burned by leaders in all of those spheres. Uh, When they see that whatever values those leaders may say that they um, hold to, when stuff in their lives gets exposed, it it causes people to distrust them and to not think of them well. And Paul doesn't want the leaders in the local church to fall into this same trap he calls it a trap of the enemy so the theme of this list really the overall theme of this is seen in how paul begins how paul begins his list his first thing that he says is that they must be above reproach and he really comes back to that at the end of the the list in verse 7 when he says they must be well thought of by outsiders that's paul's term for unbelievers and so he's kind of bracketing this list with this theme, that this big idea that he has to be above reproach. And this is really a one-point sermon today, and this is it. This is, this is Paul's big idea, is we need to live above reproach. And this theme of not harming the credibility of the gospel, not bringing reproach on the, the, the credibility of the gospel, but adorning it is a driving passion for Paul. I remember a few years ago when I first started kind of noticing this and reading through Paul's letters, you begin to see it everywhere in his letters, in the narrative accounts of him in Acts. And I'm just going to put up one verse as an example. This is Paul on trial before a Roman politician giving a defense of himself. And so often Paul's defense of the gospel included statements like this. He says, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. He's saying, I've been a man of character and you can test that. I've, I've not done anything against these different people. And he repeatedly emphasizes, particularly in the letters of First and 2 Timothy and Titus, this idea of, he, likes, he uses the phrase adorning the gospel, which I love that phrase. It's a beautiful phrase, adorning the gospel and not bringing a stain on the gospel, saying that that's especially important for those in leadership in the church. Now, I think it's really important for me to stop here and pause here and clarify what Paul means and what Paul does not mean, because we can kind of get on board with this idea pretty easily. I think people say like, yeah, yeah, we need to have a good public image in our society, especially a Not a very Christian society. We want to make the church look good. The problem is that this idea has been really abused by many churches and Christian organizations in recent years. What Paul does not mean is, okay, your public image, how you appear in society, that's really important. What you do secretly, as long as it stays kind of hidden, that's not as important. So public image important, private conduct, not as important. That is not, that is the furthest thing from what Paul is saying. But that seems to be kind of how this is taken by people. Because tragically, in recent years, I'm not going to name specifics, but there have been a lot of believers and and Christian organizations that have brought very public reproach on Christ, on the church. And guess what? Unfortunately, the truth always seems to come out. They cover it up for a while, but the truth always just seems to find a way to, to come out. And what ends up happening is it ends up being worse for that pastor, that, that church, that Christian university, that Christian church camp, that um, Christian politician, whoever. I'm sure you've got people in your mind right now. Paul is saying that these are qualities that shouldn't, obviously they're not going to perfectly describe those in the church and those leading in the church but they should consistently describe them this is not about how you act for an hour and a half on a sunday morning this is how people in your neighborhood would describe you people in your workplace people in your school people in your family do they describe you as this kind of a person pastor bart has told the staff multiple times what you say carries more weight what you do carries more weight why well because we're we're kind of the the public face and image we kind of in a sense carry the name of, of fullness but i think that the same thing could be said to everyone here who calls jesus their lord and their savior what you say in this society carries more weight what you do carries more weight because you are the representative of Jesus, of His Church, of His Gospel, in this society, and standing for truth is one thing that is essential. That was um, Chapter One, two Sundays ago. Pastor Bart preached on that. We, we have to stand for the truth, guard the truth. We're shaped by the truth, but how we stand for the truth is actually just as essential. That's today's theme. Pete Cazero says, "You can't do God's work your way." without paying a steep price. I'm gonna always remember, I think it was about a couple of years ago, two things were going on in, in my life that really left a marker with me, shaped me in how I think about leadership and how I think about character and leadership. So leadership and character and how they go together, specifically for, for leaders in the church, but really just kind of leadership in general. Periodically, Pastor Bart, We'll uh, lead the staff through a book together. We'll read through books together sometimes as a staff, and he'll kind of facilitate discussion. And we were going through this book that he had, was leading us through. I think actually Cheryl had, had uh, suggested this book to him. Um, it's a book called Servants and Fools by Arthur Burrs, and it's a biblical theology of leadership. This is a fantastic book, by the way. I have not read half as many, probably not a quarter of as many leadership books as Pastor Bart has, but this is my favorite, <laughs> Um, This is the first one that I would recommend, especially if you don't think of yourself as a leader, which I know that there are people here who don't. um, This is a great book, and I would recommend it. It's also kind of a unique Christian leadership book in that it kind of argues that the Bible doesn't have a lot of positive things to say about leaders, but it has a lot of critical things to say about those in leadership and really emphasizes the, the danger of leaders without character, Um, many amazing quotes. Here's just one to give you a little flavor. Arthur Burr says, the how, the means, and the character of leadership are crucial. If our means contradict priorities, we promote then we subvert and corrupt the gospel. So simultaneously, as we're working through this book over a period of, I guess, a few months as a staff, I was also listening to this podcast of really the, the collapse of a very well-known American megachurch um, under the, the domineering and spiritually abusive leadership of a very, very gifted and talented pastor, very gifted communicator. And these two, the juxtaposition of these two realities, working through this book with our staff and listening to this, this kind of collapse under destructive leadership really sobered me. Because the scary thing was that God had clearly been working and moving through this this particular church. Many good things had come from the ministry, but to quote a saying that Pastor Bart has said many times over the years, I hope I'm getting this this right, this is just from my memory, um, but he said this many times over the years power without character destroys the one wielding it. And I remember praying repeatedly during this time, God. Please protect me. Please protect our leaders from falling into the traps of the enemy. Help us to lead humbly. You know, I think, I think most people would agree that something is wrong with men in general right now in our society. It may feel like a kind of a sudden turn, but I'm still on point here. Um, not long ago, I googled the phrase crisis and masculinity you can do this sometime. Um, you can just Google this. Please don't do it right now. But uh, I, just, I just was curious. I, just, I Googled that phrase and got all kinds of hits. But the interesting thing to me was that a lot of publications have published pieces, articles on this just in recent years. But it was interesting that people both on the, like, you know, the left-leaning type publications and right-leaning publications, they were all writing on it. And Because everyone agrees that something is wrong. Now, no one agrees what the root problem is or what needs to be done, but everyone agrees that something's wrong. And so you have these well-known men who are heralded as great examples of men in some circles, and in other circles they're heralded as terrible examples of what a man should be. Some would say any form of masculinity is just inherently bad, need to get rid of all of it. Others would say, well, no, no, men just need to be more domineering and aggressive, not less. And I think, I think I would say that Paul's list that he gives, that we're going to look at again here in just a second, probably doesn't fit super neatly in either of these kind of modern cultural extremes of what a man should be. So here's what i want to do. I want to look briefly at the list just kind of compiled throughout 1 Timothy, and this list could be longer if I brought in 2 Timothy, But just briefly what do the false teachers look like what characterizes them because remember the the elders in the church are supposed to contrast this list i think when you when you see them side by side you're going to see the contrast so just a few things about these wolves in the church the false teachers they teach different doctrines evidently they're doctrines of demons paul calls you know demons can do that they can create can form false doctrines um they lack love. They have seared consciences. They are puffed up with conceit. They see godliness only as just a means for financial gain. They have a love of money. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. They like to argue. And in some, they're, they're bringing reproach on the church. Now, the type of men that Paul wants to lead the church. But Remember now, remember now he's, he's specifically speaking to the men who are leading this church. But... As all who are leading, as Christ's followers, that's everyone here, who calls Jesus Lord, these things should also characterize you. Especially, I I am speaking, I know I'm speaking specifically to the men a little bit more today, but but these can characterize everyone. So Paul's going to list 11 qualities in verses 2 and 3. Seven are things that the men, the leaders should be, and four really that they should not be. And I want to say this before I put him up again. For guys here in this room, I don't know for a fact that this is the case or not, but if you're a guy here and you would just say you feel like you struggle to fit into the cultural stereotype of what a man should be, of what it means to be masculine, I would say don't look to the voices in culture. Don't look to popular influencers on YouTube or podcasters, this list is a really good place to start of what should a man be. This list is a really good place to start of who you want your daughter to bring home. So, what should they be? Above reproach is the first one. Remember, that's kind of the the summary statement of the whole thing. Um, The husband of one wife. Literally, this phrase means one woman man. It's actually kind of a difficult phrase to interpret what exactly paul means in this is he talking about not having multiple wives uh is he talking about just one wife only ever in in the man's life that was actually the understanding of the first few centuries of the church was that there was no remarriage uh for for the the men that were leading in the church now obviously paul's not against remarriage in general go see first corinthians 7 uh, But that could be what he means specifically talking about leaders in the church. Um, At minimum, at minimum, this means being faithful to your wife and honoring the marriage bed, even if you're single, still being pure. Now, you remember what I said a little, a few minutes ago, that this list was really not distinctively Christian. It really actually kind of fit in with the, the highest ideals of Greek moral philosophy of the time. Well, that's true for most of it, not so much for this one. This is the one that stands in contrast with the culture. Uh, I'm going to put up just a couple of quotes that give you a little taste of what was expected of this kind of normal behavior of men in that culture. Not the most fun quotes to read, but they give you an idea. Demosthenes, a Greek statesman, says this. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wise to bear us legitimate children. That was a typical Greek male attitude. Tom Holland, who's not the guy that plays Spider-Man, but uh, there's a historian of antiquity whose name is Tom Holland. He says this, In Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of a road as a toilet. This was a pornographic culture before there was internet. And it's in this environment that Paul says, be a one-woman man. Stand in contrast to the society around you. He goes on, he says, they must be sober-minded. I'm going to move a little quicker through the list now. Sober-minded, that's kind of the idea of having a mind trained for wisdom and discernment. Self-control, respectable. I'm talking really about outward public behavior. <clears throat> Hospitable. This is the idea that you you welcome people into your home. You're inviting. You're not someone who's just distant and aloof from people. You're very present with people. You're involved with people. Able to teach. That's the only skill that is listed. Not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. And then in the next few verses, Paul's going to list three spheres that men kind of operate in and what they should be like in these three spheres. In the home, they must manage the household well. This is the idea of not being a dictator to your your wife and your kids, but being a a gentle, caring shepherd. Um, In the realm of faith, he must not be a public, I mean, a a recent convert. Um, We're not born again and automatically spiritually mature. This is um not talking about age, but this is talking about spiritual maturity. In the public sphere must be well thought of by outsiders. That's Paul's term for unbelievers. <clears throat> and then he's gonna go on. He's gonna give the list for, for deacons um, in verses eight through thirteen. It's a very similar list. Not gonna really spend as much time on there because it is very similar, but one thing that is, is different, um, well, he doesn't say teaching. As, as the the duty of them. But he does say that they must hold to the faith with a clear conscience. I think that's an interesting phrase. What are we holding to as leaders, as influencers? Because it over time becomes evident. What it is that we're really holding to. Are they the core doctrines of our faith? Or is it a kind of a hobby horse that we just we get really interested in? It's sort of a more of a peripheral issue? What are we holding to? New Testament scholar um, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, he says, I think this is a great quote. This, is, this has stuck with me over the years as one who is influencing, trying to, to shepherd um, the young people in this church. He said, our hearers are inevitably drawn towards that about which we are most passionate. Every teacher knows that. We got teachers here that know that. My students are unlikely to learn all that I teach them. They are most likely to learn that about which I am most excited. And he goes on to say this. If the gospel is merely assumed, while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion, we will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and to focus zeal on the periphery. You know, I was thinking about this and... This might be a little bit scary what I'm about to say next. So I was thinking, what would, what would Bart, what would he say? I say Bart holds to? Um, what is he, as, the, as the head shepherd, as the head under shepherd, under Jesus, our main shepherd, what would what we hold to? I think a lot of people could list amazing things that he holds to, but I think if I had to narrow it down to one thing and only one thing that he holds to, I think I would say it's this, that we must have understand and walk in the power presence and person of the Holy Spirit that it is a non-negotiable and if we don't all of this is meaningless and we're all going to end up miserable hopefully I know he's either watching live or he's going to watch this hopefully that's an accurate representation but that that would be my best shot at that so going back to this list though To put it in my own words, and this might be actually a helpful thing for you to do later, is try to put this in your own words in kind of more modern setting. For me, to put this this list that Paul gives in my own words, this is what I think he's saying. He's describing a man who is safe for vulnerable people. I think that's a good summary of this. Someone who does not have to turn to screens or substances or making more money in order to cope or to numb himself. Does not have to prove himself better than others or feel a need to always be dominating others. Doesn't see others only as a means to get something for himself. He shows strength under control. He uses his strength to protect and not harm others. Gentleness is not a weakness. Gentleness is is a strength. It's using your strength to, to not hurt others, but to protect others. Someone who's not easily deceived, someone whom people feel safe opening up to, someone who people are willing to listen to because they know that they can learn something from him. These are the kind of men, Paul says, who we need to be influencers in our church. These are the kind of people that we should honor, be shaped by, who are worthy of respect. You know, for all of us, I think if we, if we look back over when we first came to, to know the Lord, and if we look back over our journey of, Walking with Jesus and deciding to stay with Jesus and not, you know, give up and walk away, as we've seen a lot of people do in more recent times in our society. Um, certain individuals have been key in our lives, right? I'm sure you can think of them right now. I, I could list many in in my life, but at the top of that list would be my dad and my mom. You know, you did not come to Christ in a vacuum. You didn't stay with Christ in a vacuum, just, you know, you and God and no one else. There have been certain individuals who've been influential for you. And these are the kind of people who did not repel you away from Jesus, but they attracted you to him. And you would look at them and you'd say, if that's what a follower of Christ looks like, I want to be a follower of Christ and I want to stay a follower of Christ. Paul wants these to be the kind of people that the church is known by. Yes, who lead the church, but who just, who make up the church. Whether you're a man or a woman, a, a, an adult or a, a young person. Who are not going to hurt the credibility of the faith, but help it. But remember, Paul's overarching desire that, we, that they be above reproach, it applies to all of us. We want to be a people who don't hurt others' view of the gospel, but enhances here's how I kind of want to close this. You, know, you may be sitting here today. In fact, I'm sure there's probably people here sitting here today, maybe specifically guys who are sitting here and saying, okay, I, I do not measure up to that list in any way, shape, or form. I can think of just going down the list. Yeah, I've failed in that. I've failed in that. I haven't, haven't been this and I, what I should have been, and I have done this what I should not have done. I've definitely hurt other people's concept of what a follower of Christ should be. Welcome to the club. (laughs) Me too. I can think of many, many times, unfortunately, where I've hurt the credibility of the gospel in front of other people, around unbelievers, and I deeply regret those times. But Paul is not talking about perfection here. Paul's not a a perfectionist. Paul is talking about the type of person that you you're being shaped and molded into being. And here's what I want to say to everyone here, but specifically to those who are doubting that they they can't do this. Don't put more confidence in your sin nature, in your sinful habits, in the demonic strongholds in your life, than in the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who was present and active at the creation of the universe who was present and active in raising Jesus from the dead, defeating death, is literally taking up space in your physical body. And he's for you. He wants holiness for you more than you want it for yourself. He's available. You can walk with him. He's God living inside of you. You can be the type of person who adorns the gospel. So let's do it. Let's be it. Let's be men that adorn the gospel. Let's be women that adorn the gospel. Let's be young people that adorn the gospel. Let's be leaders in this broken world who adorn the gospel. In just a second, I'm going to have Gabriel come up and lead us in a, a confession, really a prayer, corporately, um, to follow up on this. And then and Craig and the team are going to lead us in a closing song. But here's the last verse, the last passage that I want to put up on here. And, uh, and, and close with this. This is also a passage from Paul. This is in uh, 2 Corinthians. And Paul says this. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Oh God, may that be us. In Jesus' name, Gabriel.
0: Thank you so much, Scott. So good. Well, and then Scott has actually written a confession for us to take these things and declare them corporately together. So let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. And I'll read the part where it says leader and where it says everyone, uh, you all speak out. And I just want to say, By way of reminder, whenever we do confession here at Fullness, this is prayer. This is not a rote thing that we're just reading off a screen. This is prayer. So take it as that and nothing less. Oh God, we live in a land where your name has been defamed. There's much confusion and contempt surrounding your character and your church. Holy Spirit, please empower us to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, too often the church has brought reproach on ourselves by our private deeds and public words. As Paul says, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of us. Holy Spirit, please empower us to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, in this broken world in which we live and lead others, may we lead in such a way that others are not repelled from Christ and his church, but rather drawn towards them. Holy Spirit, please empower us to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, may we be known in our families, our schools, and our workplaces as those who display the character of Christ and who are shaped by those who do the same. Holy Spirit, please empower us to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, we know that we often fail to show godly character in our words and deeds. Thank you for this efficiency of the gospel that forgives our failings and restores our brokenness. Even so, Holy Spirit, please empower us to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.